Welcome to Advice Worth Keeping. On today's podcast, we're spotlighting a conversation between one of our internal audit partners, Ahmad Babawi, and Francis Nicholson, the Vice President of Global Relations at the Institute of Internal Auditors, or the IIA. Ahmad and Francis sat down recently at the KPMG Chief Audit Executive Share Forum to discuss why and how the IIA evolved its three lines of defense model and how doing so has served to create a greater degree of freedom and flexibility for organizations. Imad, over to you. Our agenda today is geared very much to that notion of collaboration and working together at three lines of defense. Nicholas is going to walk us through that and talk about the new three lines model, which is very timely and something that affects us all. So thank you again, Nicholas. Thank you, Imad, and uh, the team for the opportunity. Of course, we're very pleased to be able to discuss the three lines model, share our insights and, and get feedback. It's a continuous process. I'm Francis Nicholson. I am the Vice President for Global Relations. I was the staff liaison for the team that was assigned the task of the review. There was a team of, of seven. But in addition to that, I, I should point out that we had a, a virtual group of 100 that were the immediate go-to advisors. And they helped us with an iterative process of, of work in progress and, and feedback. And beyond that, we consulted widely. Uh, we had a number of surveys. One solicited more than 2,000 responses globally. We also did some due diligence by mapping where the three lines of defense was codified, where it is referenced in policies and legislation regulation. So I wanted to begin just by showing you that where we've come from. So we'll take a quick peek to remind you of the three lines of defense. Um, it wasn't something that the IA invented. It had been around probably for 20, 25 years conceptually and in a number of forms before we jumped on it. But we adopted it formally in 2013 with a position paper. So I'll remind you of that because obviously that provides the, the basis for the innovation. About the analysis, um, identified what we saw as the strengths and the opportunities for improvement. And then, of course, spend most time talking you through the new model, principles that it's based on, the new graphic, what's that is trying to communicate, and then open up for discussion. So starting first then with the, we can now say the old model, the 2013 Three Lines of Defense. It's comprised, as, as I'm sure you're aware, of seven main components. It has the governing body, which includes audit committees of the board, spanning the organization at the top. There's a, a broad stripe for senior management crossing most of the organization. Under senior management, we have the first line and the second line, first line of defense, focused on management controls, internal control measures. Second line, you can see, is very highly segmented. There are six second-line functions that are called out, but of course, there are others. We could have added ethics, sustainability, and others that are developing all the time. And then the third line of defense has that dual reporting line to senior management and to the governing body, just has the words internal audit in that large block. And then to the outside of the organization, there are two vertical stripes, one to show the role of external audit, and the second to show regulators. So that's very familiar, although you'll see from time to time variants that exist on the internet. If you Google three lines, sometimes you see four, five, six, seven, even as many as 11 lines I've seen variations on this. I think this is probably the model that most people will think of and associate with the IA. And we've definitely tried to show the lineage in our evolution. We know that it had received a number of criticisms and it had received, you know, alternate versions. We also recognize that it had quite a few appealing characteristics and strengths. 
I mean, it's based on this idea, I think, that each successive line can eliminate more and more of, of the threat to stakeholder value or perhaps to the stakeholder. It can create a, a false sense of security because each of the lines, each, each of the functions that are responsible for risk management may feel that they're somehow not fully on the hook. First line management might think, well, we don't need to worry about risk anymore because we have a risk function, we have a chief risk officer. It's no longer our responsibility. We can just get on with making money, if you like. And the second line will think, okay, we're here to help, but we don't own risk. So, you know, we point the fingers in to the left and to the right of us for the first line or the third line will catch any problems, any weaknesses in risk management. And then internal audit perhaps will feel from its position of independence that it's not responsible for risk either. And it's quite happy to help, but um, it, it, it's independent and doesn't own risk. So that this the kind of false sense of security syndrome, we have seen that arise. And that, that's used as a criticism against the model that by making everybody responsible for risk management, then nobody is. So it perhaps defeats its own purpose to some degree. And I, and I think we would recognize that. When we launched into the review, as I said, we, we took a lot of consultation. We spent a long time looking at the picture and uh, looking at its references and its alternate versions. We knew that it was fairly well recognized and adopted. So why? Why was it so loved by some? And we know that it's used widely for discussions, and perhaps that's its, its principal purpose in helping to explain, for example, what is internal audit, which sometimes can be complicated and uh, not well understood, by being able to draw a simple picture and say that internal audit is the third line of defense. There's a quick and perhaps conceptually easy way of communicating what internal auditors do. It is reasonably well known, particularly in financial services sector where it originated and fairly widely adopted in that. Perhaps it's kind of the accepted or expected model by financial regulators. And as I've said, it's pretty easy to explain and has a, a graphic that is well recognized. However, I mean, we can say a number of things about this. And one of the things that I think is telling is that to define internal audit as the third line of defense may be easy to understand, but it's also somewhat limiting. And it is at odds with our mission in the standards that internal audit is designed to enhance as well as protect value. And it raises all these questions about crossing the line, blurring the line, advisory services, consulting services, does that undermine independence? So it creates a lot of questions that it isn't really equipped to answer. And the whole notion seems to be somewhat reactive, defensive, structural, prescriptive, static. It suggests that you have like those umbrellas, the first line acts first, and if it doesn't work, then the second line steps in. If that doesn't work, then the third line steps in. It's, it's really counter to what we know about organizations, which are much more organic, much more flexible, and these operations occur concurrently rather than sequentially. So it is a tendency towards silos. It looks a bit like a, an organizational chart, and I think people have read it as such. We have to arrange our resources to match the picture. And there are other things as well that we didn't like about it. It suggests communication is kind of just upwards, those arrows, although the arrows aren't explained. We assume it's communication, which makes senior management and the board somewhat passive and remote. Uh, so, you know, we recognize the strengths, but we want to build on those in the evolution. And it isn't equipped to answer questions like the, the so-called blurring. Is it okay for the chief audit executive to have other responsibilities outside of internal audit, uh, so-called crossing the line. Not all organizations have a regulator. So that, does that mean if we don't have a regulator, this doesn't apply to us? Public sector, smaller organizations, do they get value from this? And in fact, as I've said, some variations on this have four, five, six, seven more lines because people want to count external audit, the regulator, senior management, the board. If they're part of the picture, why are they not lines? And maybe there are other oversight bodies outside 
Maybe there are subdivisions inside the organization and they want to count those too. So that, that was a very quick sort of summary of the analysis and where we saw the opportunity for improvement. There was a moment, I think, when we realized that we had two choices. One would be to invent something so complicated that it would be sufficient for every type of organization. The other is to make it so simple that it could account for every type of organization, because we know that organizations vary significantly. So if we wanted to represent all of those different variations and subdivisions and hierarchies and overlap and blurring and different ways in which organizations align their resources, etc., then we would have to be something vastly complicated. Having fairly quickly understood that we could never do that, we wanted instead to walk in the other direction and say, okay, let's make this principles-based and create a greater degree of, of freedom and flexibility so that organizations can determine for themselves how to apply those principles. We wanted to take stock as to uh, the reason, the rationale, the underpinning, the foundation for the model, which we believe helps explain how it can be used, what it's trying to achieve, and therefore will make it more adaptable, flexible, scalable, and organizations will get greater value from it. You know, we started with a kind of story that says organizations are important, very little that you can do without activity being regulated by organizations, several even simple things in private life, such as jumping in your car to buy a loaf of bread. There are probably very many organizations that are involved in that process, the transaction itself, but also the buying the gas, the, the rubber on the tires, the roads, etc, etc. I mean, organizations are deeply involved. And therefore, it's very important to us they're successful. But they're also hugely variable in their size and structure and resources. And the way they behave doesn't look like the old three lines of defense graphic, um, which looks very regimented, structured, more like a machine. And whereas we, we know that organizations are perhaps better pictured as, as organisms, that they evolve, that they, they're dynamic, and that operations are simultaneous and integrated, etc. We also recognize that perhaps the old model reflected an outmoded view of risk management as well, not just an outmoded view of organizations, but of risk management. And risk management, as we know, isn't just about defense. It isn't just about stopping bad things from happening. It needs to be fully integrated. One of the things that the graphic seems to suggest, because the words risk management appear in the middle box, is maybe that's where risk management happens. Well, we know that's not true. Risk management is integrated, is embedded is part of the management process, is central to governance. So we had a sense now that the organization picture and the, the concepts in the old model needed modernizing um, if it was to be understood and applicable to more modern organizations and to be relevant for the next 20 years or so. Taking a step from that, we asked ourselves about governance. Organizations, to be successful, require governance. Organizations are complicated. Organizations are sort of arm's length activities. The stakeholders ask the board to take care of things and they pass over that responsibility. The board itself is likely to be part time and remote. So the board passes on resources and actions and the objectives to management. So how is the stakeholder to know, to be confident, to trust that everything is operating as it should do? How does the board know when it meets four or five times a year what's going on? Yes, you have attestations, you have uh, reports, you have assurance from management. But for there to be governance, we believe that an essential ingredient is independent confirmation, independent assurance. And these three elements, accountability to the stakeholder, actions, application resources, and the management of risk by management, together with some form of independent assurance, 
These are the three essential components of governance. This is the foundation for our principles and for the new model. We're focusing much more on roles rather than functions and structures. And this is our very kind of atomistic distillation of governance. Organizations very quickly become much more complicated, but we believe it's, it starts with this as a minimum. And typically, of course, accountability is assigned to the governing body or to the board. Management takes ownership of actions, the application of resources, the decision-making, which is part of managing and owning risk. The two are intertwined and assurance within the organization, typically internal audit. But organizations create subcommittees for their boards. So they separate out those roles. They vary according to how much the CEO leads strategy or is, is directed by the board. They have hierarchies, you know, senior management down to low management. They may be part of a group or they may be a very simple partnership or small firm. And they may have many divisions or not. Within that complexity, they may or may not have fully formed separate functions for risk, for compliance, for ethics, for legal compliance. So the degree to which they're separated isn't fundamental principle. It's a function of the resource, the complexity, the environment, the objectives, and the requirements of the regulator. We recognize that under the management, the primary action to serve the, the needs of, of the clients to produce a service or produce products, and also within that to manage risk, to comply with internal and external expectations and requirements to ensure that you have a sustainable operations and that there's ethics, etc. That could either be combined or those roles may be separated. And that is really one of the ways in which organizations vary. So we believe these are the main components. You'll see that, you know, previously were known as the first line of defense and second line of defense, now first line roles, second line roles. That's the reason why we have placed them both within the management space. Absolutely, those roles for compliance, for risk management, for ethics, for legal counsel, for security are hugely important. And in large, sophisticated, dynamic, complex organizations, they tend to be very well separated. Specialist resource, additional oversight, challenge to those with first-line roles, and even reporting lines between chief compliance officer, the chief risk officer, and others directly to the board. You can have as many points of contact between management and the governing body as required. But fundamentally, we believe that that's still within the domain, within the responsibility of management. This helps, I think, also explain and understand the distinctive nature of internal audit. Internal audit isn't just another second line function. It is independent. It is independent from management and from those management responsibilities. It is independent by being accountable to the governing body, sometimes described as the eyes and ears of the governing body. One point that we will emphasize the importance of collaboration, communication, integration. Internal audits, independence does not mean isolation, should not mean isolation. It really needs to be fully involved and engaged with management and with operations and with activities in order to be able to provide valuable authoritative insight. So that I think that line is pretty much a quote from the paper, independence does not entail isolation. Of note also, we've put a single stripe on the outside because we know that not all organizations have significant regulatory oversight, but some have multiple regulators. So we could never satisfy the right number of stripes. We've dealt with that with a single stripe to say this is other external assurance providers. Also to note in the discussion of is it three lines or four lines or five lines or 10 lines? To some degree, I guess we sidestepped that. Now, I think if we had started with a blank piece of paper, it's fairly logical that the governing body and those responsibilities for accountability is one of our lines. 
But it would have been so confusing to count that as the first line and get everybody to try and think differently and say, oh, second line is now now management. So we kept language, first, second, third line, but we want them to convey more about roles rather than structure. We kept the language in the interest of familiarity and heritage and lineage. We wanted this to be clearly an evolution from the three lines of defense rather than a blank piece of paper. We also spent many hours talking about three lines of what and decided we would just drop the word defense. Nothing felt entirely satisfactory. Three lines of defense and offense, three lines of assurance, three lines of governance. We felt it was sufficient to move away and just call it the three lines model. And that was enough to show its linkage, but also to communicate what we felt was important. I want to talk about the principles. The principles are very important because if you want to be principles based, you have to explain your principles. And we developed six principles, which relate to the main components. It starts with our atomistic model of governance and comprising as a minimum accountability, actions and assurance. But how you assign those, how you apportion those, how you resource those is organization specific. The second principle is the roles for the governing body. Um, governance can ensure that the organization fulfills its purpose that meets the interests of stakeholders. And you know, most importantly, governing body roles with respect to the management and internal audit, ensuring that management has the resources and the objectives and is overseen, and that internal audit is established to provide independent and objective oversight assurance. Management roles are defined as being the first and second line roles, as I've said, may be separated or blended. There's great advantage in being able to separate them, to have that specialist resource, to have that additional challenge expertise as a division of labor. But we also recognize smaller organizations, they tend to be more combined and blended. The managers in those organizations would have to undertake their, if you like, their day job, which would include managing risk or making sure that they were aligned with legal requirements with no separate function to provide that further challenge. Uh, third line roles are defined as being the objective assurance and advice that the uh, internal audit provides. Again, recognizing that in some organizations, large multilateral organizations in the in, um, public sector, for example, may subdivide this and have oversight and evaluations and interventions and inspections are all regarded as third line roles. That's perfectly fine. Third line independence is called out as a separate principle because it is important. And then lastly, the importance of collaboration. And this only works. Governance, risk management value creation works in the interconnection, in the overlapping coordinated activities of those functions. You can see that we've added the context, some kind of explanation to say where this comes from. It's principles-based, scalable, flexible. There are some changes to the language. The word defense is, is now missed. Not to say that risk management doesn't include defense, but we want to say that it's not just about defense. And we focused on roles. This is not an organizational chart. It's a way of understanding how these components work to provide effective governance and risk management, and that they have separate combinations and contributions, emphasizing the importance of collaboration and distinctiveness of internal audit. You know, people may be disappointed that we didn't answer the question. So what about blurring or crossing the line? Our answer is twofold, really. One is that when the CAE, when Chief Audit Executive, is asked to take on additional roles, it's not about blurring or crossing the line, which is a very structural kind of way of thinking about it, we would say that would be a question of, can you blend, can you combine those roles, the role of providing independent and objective assurance and having responsibility and ownership for decisions and aspects of risk? Organizations need to make that decision for themselves. The model can't be prescriptive and say, thou shalt not. Organizations need to determine the best use of their resources, but also to recognize that if you still want independent assurance on that activity, you can't both be responsible for it and provide assurance on it, that you need to look elsewhere for that assurance. 
that's fully consistent with the international standards. So conversations like we're having now, conversations, I think, between the audit function and within their organization to the audit committee or to their management teams. And also we've had larger bodies that have approached us and wanted more information or explanation or invited us to make presentations. I think that this dialogue is to be encouraged. And if the Three Lines paper enables individual CAEs to open up those dialogues and conversations, I think it would have been worth the effort. Well, Francis, I, uh, I must say thank you very much. That was awesome and really insightful to see the change. 